Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Pramack. On today's show, why Google's cloud crash matters and President Trump takes on AT&T again. But first, the son-in-law speaks. Last night was the premiere episode of Axios on HBO's second season, and it focused on Jonathan Swan's multi-part interview of senior presidential advisor Jared Kushner, who doesn't do this sort of thing too often. Three highlights. First, Kushner, who is in charge of the White House's Middle East peace plan, said he doesn't believe Palestinians are yet ready to govern themselves, arguing they first need things like a fair judicial system, freedom of the press, freedom of expression, and tolerance for all religions. Second, Kushner refused to condemn Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, basically arguing that the U.S. investigation into the matter isn't yet completed. It's also worth noting here, of course, Saudi Arabia doesn't have some of the freedoms that Kushner claimed the Palestinians would need to govern themselves, but he doesn't seem to bother himself with that contradiction. Third, and this is the one getting the most social media attention, Kushner refused to say whether President Trump's birtherism was racist or if his early plan to ban Muslim immigrants was discriminatory. Was birtherism racist? Um, look, I wasn't really involved in that. I know you weren't. Was it racist? Uh, like I said, I, I wasn't involved in that. I know you weren't. Was it racist? Um, look, I know who the president is, and I have not seen anything in him that is racist. The bottom line here, America deserves to hear from its most influential leaders, whether elected or not. And last night we got it, even if Kushner worked hard to avoid making too much news. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios' Jonathan Swan. But first, this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Axios' Jonathan Swan. So, Jonathan, let's start, if we can, with the backstory here. Jared Kushner gives very few interviews, let alone ones on camera. Why do you think he said yes to you? That's true up until a point. So the first 18 months of the administration, he basically did no media. But he has started to do a little bit more. So late last year, he did his first on-camera interview. It was on stage with Van Jones, a CNN event. Then he did Sean Hannity at Fox and Laura Ingram at Fox. And then he did a Time Magazine White House correspondent on stage, which was filmed. So he has started to do more. And particularly since the Mueller report came out, I think that he felt vindicated by that report. There were obviously a lot of speculation that he was going to be indicted and that didn't transpire. And so I think that, you know, there's been a lot of these questions that have hung out there and he wanted to answer some of these questions and tell his own story. In the HBO segment beforehand, there's kind of a clip of you pre-gaming with uh, Jim Vandehei, Axios CEO, and he asks you how influential you think Jared really is inside the White House. Mike Allen's actually the one who answers the question. So let me put it back to you. How influential is he inside the White House? Extraordinarily. We said in our story that he's the most influential family member to work for a president since Bobby Kennedy. I don't think you can make an intellectually honest argument against that. I don't think you can do it. He is the son-in-law, but he's also the point man for the Middle East peace planning deal, whatever you want to call it, that they're rolling out. He's now sort of the point person on immigration on the Hill. He's had a hugely influential role in the negotiations over the US-Mexico-Canada agreement, a trade agreement. He's got a direct relationships with a lot of foreign leaders. A lot of business people come through him as a conduit to the White House. He's got a great relationship with people like Apple CEO Tim Cook. And, you know, he was the key figure on criminal justice reform in terms of persuading the president. His influence is vast. His 
portfolio is vast. On the portfolio is vast. There's this fine line between having so many important things to do and having so many important things to do that you can't really do any of them because you have too much. Where do you think he falls in that? Because that is a big criticism, right? He's doing everything, so therefore he's doing nothing. I think that was true early on. His portfolio was, and I don't think he would dispute this, in the early days of the Trump administration when they were really did not have a proper structure in place. It was sort of almost comically vast. You know, he was revolutionizing government efficiency. He was, you know, managing the China relationship, etc. I would say it's wider than a normal advisor, but it's not as wide as it was at the start. It's really Middle East immigration, which let's face it, is dead on arrival on Capitol Hill. Do you think he knows that? Or not knows that, but do you think he has internalized that, that it's dead on Capitol Hill whenever it arrives? I don't think he's naive about that. Again, one of the caricature of Jared is this completely naive person. I don't think that's true. I just think what he's trying to do is a different approach, which is putting out a proposal that's Republican only, that is closer to the mainstream and should be something, certain principles that some Democrats could get behind. I think it's pretty clear from the response that this is not going to fly. And I haven't seen anything that makes me think that he's unrealistic about the prospects on Capitol Hill. I mean, what's he going to do? Talk it down and be pessimistic in public and when he meets with people on the Hill? I mean, of course not. He has to try and project optimism. But I see that as much as anything as a political play as to try and frame President Trump leading into a re-election as being about more than just building a huge wall along the southern border as actually supporting quote-unquote, merit-based immigration and having a broader conception of what immigration is. And the business community has responded very warmly to that. So you can already see a political benefit to it. For you, substantively, what was the most important thing you learned over the two days? Oh, without question, his answers to my questions about the Israeli-Palestinian peace deal. Any question I asked him that was about specific policy to try and get him to say something new, whether it was about the Middle East or immigration, he completely refused to play ball. He didn't want to make any news. He didn't want to say anything new. So the much more interesting questions were the, call them basic questions, but they're really important questions. So questions like, do you think the Palestinians are capable of governing themselves? To which the answer was basically no, or at least not now. And the hope that they can become capable was the answer. And the second one was, you know, do you think they deserve their own state with a capital in East Jerusalem, which is, again, central demand? He said that he believed they should have, quote unquote, self-determination. But when I asked him whether they needed to have free press and all of these things, fair judicial system before they could have, before the area could be investable, and I said, could they have freedom from Israeli military and governmental interference? And he said, it's a very high bar. So what I read from that was basically whatever the Trump plan proposes, you might call it a two-state solution, but I don't think you're going to have a two-state solution where the Palestinians have their own state and there is no supervision or let's call it quasi-governance from Israel. I don't think that that's going to happen, at least not initially, based on his answers. Final question for you is I know whenever you do one of these television things, uh, you, you tape lots and lots and lots of stuff and it gets you know put down to whatever it was last night, 17 or 18 minutes or so. Was there anything left on the cutting room floor that you think was particularly important? And if you had been in charge of editing, you might have kept <laughs> in there? Look, there was one exchange, which I don't know if it was revelatory, but I thought it was kind of interesting, was I was asking about his relationship with Rupert Murdoch. And he wouldn't talk about his friendships with really anyone, but he sort of opened up a little bit there and was very warm and just talked about their close friend. They've known each other, I think, 15 years and almost talked about him as if he was, I won't use the word mentor because I think I asked him that directly and he said no, but it's clear that they're very close and that he has huge regard for Rupert Murdoch. And I threw in a cheeky question there because he mentioned 
Wendy Dang, Rupert Murdoch's ex-wife, and I said, is it true? Because the Wall Street Journal reported that US counterintelligence officials warned Jared Kushner about his relationship with Wendy Dang, with the implication being that you know she was some kind of an asset for the Chinese. And he said, I'm not going to talk about intelligence, but everything's fine with her and she's a great person and whatever. So like he was basically <laughs> eager to sort of pour cold water over that. So that was kind of a moderately uh, interesting exchange that ended up on the cutting room floor. But honestly, most of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor ended up on the cutting room floor for a very good reason, either because they were more personal questions, which he just didn't want to go into. He's a very, very private person and he just didn't play ball on any of that stuff. Or when it was substantive policy like immigration or the Middle East, again, refused to say anything that he hadn't said publicly before. So that's why a lot of that ended up on the cutting room floor. Jonathan Swan of Axios, thanks so much for joining us. My final two right after this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is yesterday's Google Cloud crash, which lasted for around four hours and caused disruptions for a slew of web services. Not just Google properties like Gmail and Nest and YouTube, but also non-Google services like Snapchat and Uber. So Google blamed, quote, high levels of network congestion in the eastern U.S. and then said it will do an analysis to prevent it from happening in the future. But the postmortem isn't really why it matters. Instead, it matters because this episode reflects how America's consumer internet, and arguably lots of its enterprise internet, is basically run on the backs of just three companies. Google via its cloud, Microsoft via its Azure platform, and the biggest, Amazon via Amazon Web Services. It's the sort of concentration that might be the breakup big tech crowd's next target. And finally, President Trump this morning tweeted out a de facto request for Americans to boycott AT&T due to what he calls unfair coverage by AT&T subsidiary CNN. Two things here. First, this may be the new normal, but it's still jarring to hear an American president encourage damage. Yeah, this is damage to a private business that employs hundreds of thousands of Americans, let alone doing so from foreign soil. Second, this is a reminder of why AT&T was so certain that political considerations were part of the Department of Justice's unsuccessful efforts to block its mega merger with Time Warner, even though a judge did not allow those arguments to be made in court. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great National Chocolate Macaroon Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.